This is our last week in that sermon series that we've been calling Nameless, where we have been looking at nameless women across Scripture. And every week we've kind of been opening up by just having a general conversation about acknowledging how important names in general are in our society, right? I mean, people care a lot about what they name their children, about what they name their pets. We name street names and town names and bridge names after people that have had a big impact on that place or maybe something significant that happened there. I mean, names in our culture and names in our society are very, very important. They usually carry a whole lot of meaning and a whole lot of purpose. And the same thing is true for names within Scripture. Usually names in Scripture contribute in some way to the story, whether it's a significant place that's named after something, or when you learn the meaning of someone's name, suddenly who they are and their story begins to make a whole lot more sense. And we've talked about some examples of that over the past couple of weeks, about how Jacob's brother Esau, his name Esau means hairy because he was a very hairy person, or how Adam's name is oftentimes linked back to the Hebrew word for ground because God formed him from the dust of the ground and breathed life into him. There's examples of this all over scripture where somebody's name has a really important role to play in their story and in how we understand their story. And how despite that, So many people in the Bible remain nameless, especially women in the Bible. So the past couple of weeks, we've just been looking at some of the stories of these nameless women in Scripture who I believe play a really, really important role in the narrative of Scripture, so much so that I think we we deserve to know their names. We started off the first week by looking at the bleeding woman that reaches out to touch the fringes of Jesus' cloak. The next week we looked at Lot's wife who turns around and looks back at the city being destroyed and turns into a pillar of salt. Julie was in here last week and she helped us look at the woman who was caught in adultery. Remember when Jesus says, you without sin, you throw the first stone, that story, that woman who was caught in that moment. And this week we are in the gospel of Luke and we're going to look at a sinful woman. That's what she's called in the text. We're going to look at the sinful woman who anoints Jesus's feet. This is kind of a longer scripture reading. It's in chapter 7 of the gospel of Luke. It's verses 36 through 50. And I thought about breaking it up, but I think it's going to be important for us to just read the whole thing together. So let's go ahead and read it. I'm going to read it off the screen with y'all. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought in an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this was who was touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debts, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. 
Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which for many have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say together, thanks be to God. I feel like it's a safe thing to assume with everybody in the room that you know the feeling of a good old-fashioned dinner table reckoning. I know that you have been there, especially like when I read this story, I immediately got transported back to when I was a kid, right? And you do something at school that you know you shouldn't have done, and you think that you just might get away with it without your parents finding out. It's all just going to be washed under the rug. But then you learn that your teacher, that she did actually call your mom or call your dad or send them an email or that another parent told them or, or that somehow, some way they found out what you had done at school that originally you thought they may not find out. But luckily, you have practice after school, or you have some club after school, or some extracurricular, or your dad's going to work late, so he's not going to be home till later, but you know that you're not going to have to be around both of your parents until dinner, right? You know that feeling, don't you? You know the feeling of just a good old-fashioned dinner table come to Jesus meeting, and you know that sitting around that table, there isn't going to be anywhere to hide, that you're going to have to face the music, probably with a whole lot of eye contact, right? I, I can remember days like that as a kid. Now, let me say, I was like, I was a pretty well-behaved kid. I mean, I feel like you would expect your preacher to say that. I mean, I was. I think I was a pretty well-behaved kid. That's not to say I didn't push some limits. I didn't, I still tested some boundaries, but for the most part, I stayed pretty in between the lines, so when this kind of thing did happen to me, oh my gosh, I, I mean, I can remember it so vividly. I can remember the, the pit that I felt in my stomach every time I knew that I was going to have to face something like this at, at the dinner table. And what made it worse is that I am an only child. And you know, I've heard it before, right? Only children have it so easy. Oh my gosh, I've heard it my whole life. I'm convinced that maybe this is the one thing that only children have worse than kids with siblings. Because I'm guessing that if you grew up with a sibling and you do something at school you're not supposed to do, you're just praying that your sibling does something worse or that maybe they at least do something comparable so that all of the attention isn't on you at the table. But for us only children, there is zero hope of that. Zero. I mean, it's an every man for himself kind of situation when something like this happens. And you know that your actions are going to be the focal point of conversation. So you just got to walk in and face the music. My guess is that you have felt something like this before. The, the sweaty 
palms, the racing thoughts, trying to come up with reasons to justify your actions, whatever they are, the heart feeling like it's going to pound out of your chest. Remember that, that, that pit in your stomach, that feeling of anxiety in the back of your head? You know that feeling. And I can't help but believe that, that this nameless woman, that she must have felt something like that when she walked into this dinner party where Jesus is meeting with a Pharisee named Simon. That's where our reading picks up. We learn that a Pharisee, who we later learn whose name is Simon, has invited Jesus into his home to come and eat with him. The Pharisees in most of the Gospels receive a lot of bad press, and usually they're pretty opposed to the ministry and the mission of Jesus. But this one, at least in this moment, seems to be kind of teetering on the fence about what he thinks about Jesus and what Jesus is doing. Maybe he's intrigued by Jesus after hearing some of the things that he's been doing around town, and and he's willing to invite him into his home and have him as a guest at his table. And it doesn't seem like it's very long into dinner or even maybe the dinner hasn't even really started yet before this nameless woman enters. And she immediately makes a big commotion, doesn't she? She interrupts whatever it is that is going on. She goes and stands behind Jesus where he would have been reclining at a table so his feet would have been behind him. And she just begins to weep. And her tears begin to fall on Jesus' feet, and, and she lets her hair down and begins to clean Jesus' feet with her hair. And then she begins to kiss them. And then she pours this expensive alabaster ointment all over the feet of Jesus. And at least to me, it becomes really clear really quick that this is way more than this Pharisee bargained for when he made the decision to invite Jesus into his home. And it seems like Simon doesn't really waste any time kind of making that known. He says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him right now. He would know what kind of woman she is. Surely he would know that this is a sinner. And you know, Simon, he's probably right. I mean, this woman probably was a sinner. But the reality is that that kind of table company for Jesus is is really nothing new. Especially in the Gospel of Luke, it seems like Jesus is always sitting around the table with, with somebody. It's like the way this Gospel is told, the way we're supposed to get to know Jesus, what he's really about, is who he's willing to sit around the table with and, and break bread with. It's like we get a close-up look at who he prefers to keep as his table company for his, for his meals. And so it's no surprise that in this gospel especially, the chief criticism that gets thrown at Jesus over and over and over again is not about his theology. It's not that he's unorthodox. It's not that he's not following Torah. It's that this man eats with sinners, Just two verses before this story in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus gets called a glutton and a drunkard because of who he's willing to sit around the table with. No one can deny the fact that Jesus eats with sinners. Now, we don't know what the sin of this woman was. I mean, some commentaries like to speculate. I don't think that's very helpful, but it does seem like that whatever it was would have carried some sort of element of of public shame along with it. I mean, I can't help but think that when I read the story and watch how she enters 
the room, right? It's all, she she kind of has the same persona as the bleeding woman that we covered the first week who was trying to blend into the crowd and just reach out to touch enough of Jesus's cloak, trusting that, that she's going to be healed. It's almost like we can see in this woman with just the way that she's carrying herself, that she has just grown accustomed to not really being welcome around any table, that, that her life is easier if she can just stay invisible. And I mean, so much so that she really doesn't even have any words when she walks into this room. All she can do is weep as she walks towards the feet of Jesus. I mean, I can only imagine the, the pit that she must have had in her stomach, how fast her heart must have been beating in, in this moment, how sweaty her palms must have been. Simon, the Pharisee, pretty, pretty early on in this meal must feel like that he has his answer about this rabbi named Jesus. But there's no way this man could be a prophet because this is no way for a prophet to behave. But what Simon can't see in that moment is that really nothing changed when that woman walked in because she isn't the only sinner sitting around the table. And if you notice, Jesus doesn't waste any time pointing this out to Simon. First, he tells him a really short parable about a lender who forgave two debtors, one with a large debt and one with a small debt. But then he immediately makes it a, quite a bit more personal. Did, did you notice that? He reminds Simon that when Jesus came into his house, he rudely ignored all of the common practices of hospitality that someone should have been offered when walking into someone else's home. That we enter, when he entered his house, Simon didn't offer him any water to wash his feet with. That he didn't greet him with a kiss, which would have just been a customary way to greet someone. And that he didn't anoint his head with oil. But meanwhile, this woman, from the moment that she walked in, she bathed Jesus' feet with her tears and with her, with her hair, that she kissed them and she anointed them. And I think this moment, if we let it, is begging us to ask ourselves a question. Who would we be at that table? Where would we be seated around that table? Because here's my hunch. My, my hunch is that some of us here today are a lot like that Pharisee named Simon. That we are good at being good, that we are good at being religious, that we are good at being upright. While others of us may feel like we identify more with that publicly sinful woman. And I think the truth for us this week, or at least the truth that I was struck with, is that for some of us, maybe our sin is in our lifestyle, kind of like that woman here in the text. But for others of us, our sin might be in the condemnation of someone else's lifestyle. Or another way to put it, for some of us, our sin is our sinfulness, and for others of us, our sin is our righteousness. But thanks be to God that Jesus eats with sinners. I mean, here, here Jesus eats with both types of sinners that are sitting around the table. He receives the weeping woman who is clearly just lost in her shame. And then he seems to, to pretty patiently open the eyes of the self-righteous Pharisee. I mean, the good news for us is that Jesus doesn't just eat with sinners for the shock value of it. It seems to me that Jesus eats with sinners, that he eats with us to open the doors of forgiveness. 
I know that for me, there was no better feeling as a kid than getting up from the dinner table after one of those nights. And I mean, sometimes there were consequences. Sometimes I was going to be grounded. Sometimes something in my life was going to change because of what I had done. Oftentimes I would get a really good quality lecture or get hit by that question. What were you thinking? Always a tough one to answer in the moment. Doesn't matter how much you've prepared to answer that question to your parents. It wasn't always a smooth ride at the table is, is my point. And usually my hands would be fidgeting just about the whole meal. And I wouldn't really have much of an appetite because I would just want the moment to be over. And just like any kid, the first couple of times that you make a really big mistake, the thought creeps into your head. And I know how ridiculous it is now because I'm a parent and it just seems absurd. But the thought, the fear creeps into your head that what if this is it? What if because I talked back to my teacher at school today? Or what if because I lied or because I cheated or whatever? What if they love me less now? Or what if somehow they don't love me anymore? But every single time one of those dinners would end and I would get up from the table, all of that tension would be released. All of that anxiety that I felt before, it would have just faded into a mist almost is what it felt like, just just dissipated from the room. The pit in my stomach would be gone. And though I might be tired after that dinner, there would be so much relief and I would always just, just feel so much lighter. And I think a lot like the woman, whatever shame I found myself carrying because of what I, I would have done, for the most part, I could usually let go of while I was sitting around the table with, with my parents. But more than anything else, no matter what I had done, I always left those tables convinced that I was loved and that I was forgiven. And and I think that's the gift that Jesus offers these sinners. It's not just the chance to break bread with the Messiah. It's the opportunity to stand up from the table and be forgiven. We see this all over this gospel. It doesn't matter where Jesus is eating whether it's in the house of a Pharisee, whether it's in Martha's house, whether it's in the home of a tax collector named Zacchaeus, whether it's sitting around the table with those closest friends of his the night that he's about to give himself up for them, or whether it's sitting on a beach with his friends after the resurrection eating fish for breakfast. It's like whenever Jesus sits around a table in the Gospel of Luke, he is eating with sinners. And whenever the meal ends, when they stand up, they are changed forever. Because they have realized, they have seen with clear eyes that forgiveness is right in front of them because of who this Messiah is. Anyone who sits at a table with Jesus realizes that any table that Jesus sits at becomes a table of grace. And the same is true for us when we sit with Jesus around the table no matter who we are. My hope for us this morning is that that we would know that no matter what it is that we are carrying with us, no matter what, what sin it is that we feel like we're carrying, no matter what shame it is that we may feel like we're harboring, no matter how long it has been since we have been around the table with, with Christ, 
No matter how big that pit in our stomach is, no matter how sweaty our palms are, no matter how fast our heart is beating, that we would know that thanks be to God that Jesus eats with sinners. Sinners who host the meal and sinners who interrupt the meal. Jesus always eats with sinners who leave the table forgiven. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in the gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. either in person here in the chapel or online. If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.